Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to look at your word and to see what you would have us to see from this and ask for your spirit to lead and guide in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. All right, Psalm 95. <clears throat> Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is, is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depth, uh, deep places of the earth. Strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his and he has made it. His hands form the dry land. O oh, come, let us worship and bow down, and let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are his people, the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the day of provocation, and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work, forty years long was I grieved with this generation, and said, it is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. All right, this, this psalm, the only reference we have as to who wrote it was from Hebrews. And according to the writers of Hebrews, David wrote this in 4.13. So we're going to say it's a psalm of David. Um, but we want to take a look at this. It's a very praise song. It's a very upbeat psalm. And it says, O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. And I love that. Rock of our salvation. God is our salvation. He is the rock. It starts out with sing. And this, this word for sing is make a ringing loud noise. It's a shout. In, in, as much as a song. And I think about this sometimes of how do we in church sometimes sing songs to God? Very sedate, very almost afraid to make any noise in, in many cases. And God is saying, make a joyful noise unto him. But he's saying, make it make a, a sing that song and make a joyful noise. And this when he says joyful noise, it's a war cry. If you've ever watched the old movies where they show the Romans or the Greeks or the older wars, nowadays we just, they just shoot at each other. They don't go charging at each other with a loud yell. But in world, even World War II, when they, uh, World War I, excuse me, when they charged, they yelled as they charged. And part of it was a scare tactic. We're coming. We're going to, we're going to take you over. This is the way we're supposed to worship God with, with exuberance. Not this sedate, we're afraid that we might make some noise to the, somebody might hear that we enjoy our God. God is saying, make noise, make it loud. And this is what the writer of this psalm is saying. Why? We're talking to the rock of our salvation. There should be great joy in that decision. I've seen in churches where nobody hardly sings, nobody smiles. I don't stick around in those churches very long because... I want joy. I want to know that these people know God. And I love it when people get excited about God and, and sing. They're excited because this is their God. And this is what he's saying here. Make a loud song. Make a loud shout of noise. Yeah. And, I've, and I've even going to encourage you to, you know, when, we, when we're here singing and, and praising God, we should be heard everywhere in this town, not just, not just being sedate and quiet because we're worshiping the God of the universe. It says, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. We're coming into God's presence. We're standing before him when we come together. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And this is God. When we come together, God is here. He is in our midst. We're coming before him. And it says, come with thanksgiving. Giving thanks, confessing praise to God. 
No, God is not wanting us to be griping about how bad everything is and being miserable because he is our rock of our salvation. When he brings things into our life, it is for our good. It makes us stronger. It helps us to grow. So even when he brings bad things into our life, it is for good. And he's saying, be thankful. Paul in Thessalonians says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of Christ Jesus for you in Christ Jesus. Give thanks in everything. How often do we gripe and complain when bad things are going on and God's saying, give thanks. It's a test. Sometimes it's hard to figure out what the test is, <laughs> but it's a test. <laughs> When we're going through hard things, he's either teaching us patience or he's telling us in we're, we're in the wrong place. It's a hard thing sometimes is to figure out which of the two it is. God, am I supposed to have patience and grow through this or am I in the wrong place and I have to move out of this? And sometimes the answer is not easy. But we come before God with thanksgiving. And then he says the same thing and make a joyful noise, which is again that loud war cry but this time he's very specific with psalms. And then he goes into the reason for this loud war cry and, and, and praise. He goes, for the, for the Lord is a great God. He is a great God. He wants to bless us. He wants to give us rewards. And just the fact that he is, loves us enough to send the Savior to die for us and deliver us and to help us, he is a great God. Not just somebody wants to be stingy. How many people I've met that think that God is so stingy, he doesn't want to give them anything, or, or he's wanting to give them just a little eyedropper full, you know, just enough to, to tease them. That would be the way Satan thinks. Let me quench your thirst with a drop of water. And people have bought into the lie that God doesn't care for them, isn't a great God, is somehow stingy and not loving and God is gracious. He wants to bless us. We need to really grab hold of that. He wants to bless us. He promises to meet our needs. But as any good parent, he wants to give us more than just our needs. He's not looking just to give us our daily, daily food, though that is what he's going to do. He's not looking to just barely get us by. He wants to abundantly bless us. Does that mean he's going to give us everything we desire? No, that doesn't mean he's going to give us everything we desire. But he's ready to bless us more than we really think that he wants to bless us. And this is, this is what he is. He wants us to be thankful. He wants to bless us. He wants to give us. And then he says, he's, not only is he a great God, but he's a great king above all gods. And this is actually the word uh, Elohim or, or rulers. But he is the great king. He is in control. And this is something we've also got to understand is God is sovereign. He is the king of kings, lord of lords. He will tell us what he wants done. And he expects to be obeyed. <laughs> How many times do we go to God, especially for us Americans? It's terrible for us Americans because we're so used to being independent and telling our government what we want. It's hard for us to understand this idea that God is the king of the universe and the sovereign of the universe. And he, when he says something, he expects it to be followed. And we have this tendency, as Americans especially, to kind of think, well, you know, well, it's just God, God's given us suggestions. And many people have turned the Ten Commandments into the Ten Suggestions. We can, we can obey or not obey. Uh, just we were saying this morning, we, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, there's this whole idea of, you know, hey, at this point, you know, Satan is, you know, God, God is just suggesting the way he wants us to live. And God is not suggesting anything. He has how he wants us to live. And when we don't live that way, there are consequences. The laws of sowing and reaping. It's not God standing up in heaven with a great big stick saying, let me go bang you over the head every time you disobey. But he's got the laws of sowing and reaping. You sow bad, you will reap the results of the bad decisions. When you sow good, we will generally receive 
the reward for those good, good decisions. Can God override those? Oh, yes, he is God. He is sovereign. He can do what he wants. Does he usually? No. You sin, you will reap the consequences of your sin. You do good, he will reap the consequences of that good behavior. Now, he is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. But he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and he expects to be obeyed. And if we don't obey him, there are consequences. Now, he is gracious. He is merciful. But I would never want to count on not getting the results for my sin. Matter of fact, I would say I will count on getting the consequences for my sin and be thankful if he protects me from the consequences of my sin. Because that's the way he acts. Because he is righteous, holy, just. When we disobey, we will reap the results of our disobedience. And he couldn't do anything less. And we really don't want him to do anything less. You know, we don't want a God that lets evil not be disciplined, not have consequence. He is the right, he is the godly judge. If somebody does something wrong, he is going to say, you deserve this punishment, you're going to get it. And even though he can be merciful at times, he will still say most of the time, welcome to your reward. Mm -hmm. Because he is the righteous judge. And all of us understand what a judge is. If you if somebody hurts somebody in your family and they went before the judge and they said, well, judge, you know, I'm basically a good person. I just made this one mistake and he lets him go. We're going to say that that judge doesn't know what he's doing and is being a bad judge. God is a good judge. He punishes evil and rewards good. Now, he can at times be merciful and even our judges in our, in our, in our court system can be merciful if they want to be. They're not always and they're not going to always be merciful, but they have that option of, well, you seem to be repentant. You seem to, you know, didn't, you know, what didn't hurt too many people, you know, it didn't hurt anybody or whatever it might be, or didn't hurt somebody severely. I'm going to be merciful to you. But that is the exception, not the rule on a good judge. And God is saying he's God, he's the God above all, and he is the king of kings. And this is something we need to remember when our, when we see evil and, and, and misjudgments from our government, they are going to answer to God. And this is the great thing. As I watch the world and our country getting wicked and making bad decisions, the greatest comfort I have is these leaders have to stand before God and, have, and be accountable for what they've done. Whether they're Christian or non-Christian, they're going to have to stand before God and give account for what they've done because no leader is in a position where they do not give an account. A father in a house will have to give an account for his family before God. No matter how, whether he was good or bad, he will have to give an account before God for his leadership of his family. And which, if you're the, if you're the one that's subject to that leadership, it makes it easy for you because they're the one that takes the blame unless you stepped out from under authority. If we as citizens step out of authority of the government, we will take blame for what we do. If we stay under it, we're covered by that authority. That does not mean we do wrong things just because the government says it's okay. Because God will say, you knew better and you needed to step out in the right direction. The disciples did this many times. The government said, you can't, give, you can't preach in the name of Jesus. And they said, okay, thank you, you, know, thank you gentlemen. We're going to preach in the name of Jesus. Then they went in, they were found guilty, and they got beat, and they said, thank you, God, that we were worthy of suffering. So sometimes it is right to disobey the person who has authority, but the authority still has the, the right to discipline you if you step out. And this is something we have to understand as our government gets more and more corrupt and goes more and more against God's standards, there's going to be times when we're going to have to take a stand for God even though it is against the law, and take the punishment for it. And we're seeing this in businesses that just won't participate in, in things that, are, that you think are not godly, and they're losing their jobs and or businesses because they're taking a stand for God. And this is going to happen more and more as this world gets corrupt. And it's going back to 
the time that the Christian church started in, in Jerusalem and all these places where they lost their jobs when they became a Christian. They couldn't get jobs. Nobody would come to their businesses. They would, go to, they would be crucified and, and killed because they wouldn't say that Caesar was Lord. And they would only say that God was Lord. So it is something that has always happened and it's something that will happen more as we start coming closer and closer to the end times and we see our governments getting more and more corrupt. And it's going to be harder and harder on Christians because there's going to be more and more choices that would say, are you going to live the way the government tells you or the way God tells you? And there'll be punishment for living the way God tells you to live because the government is corrupt. So we, but the key is we have a God who's above all of them. They were going to be accountable to God and we will be rewarded for standing up for him when we get to heaven. And you know, it's so amazing that God sees things so different than we do. It's going to be amazing when we get to heaven and God says, I have so many rewards for you because you were faithful. And some people, I know people who don't think that they've done much for God, but they've lived a very faithful life that people looked and said, there's somebody who's different. They're a godly person. They may not have taught much. They may not have been the greatest speaker, but the people have looked at their life and said, there's somebody I want to be like because they're following God. And we're going to see so many rewards in heaven for things that we're not even aware that we've done. You know, the song, I've told you guys, I love the song, Thank You. And it goes, you know, dreamed I went to heaven. And there were all these people that came up to this pastor and said, you know, thank you. And he just named little things, you know, faithful in teaching Sunday school. And the, and the, and the kid asked, you know, asked Jesus into heart. Faithful giving a little bit of money to the, to the missionaries. And somebody came to the Lord because of that. We do not know what we're doing that's going to touch people's lives. We don't know how our life may be what they looked at when somebody else got the privilege of actually leading them to the Lord, but it was our example that led them to be able to, to, to do it. We don't know how our faithful love for God and, and just coming to church. You know, you came to church every Sunday. Do you realize how much that impresses a lot of people who look around you? It impresses Christians who are at church when, when they're kind of you know, feeling sorry for themselves and they've watched you come every week. It, it makes your neighbors say, well, wow, they really are dedicated. It opens them up for the gospel message. We do not know how many people we're touching. Just as I've said with our website that we have out there where the people are listening to it. Everybody who gives money is helping us get this website and keeping it running. Who are we touching? How are we touching these people? We won't know until we get to heaven and see the people who have listened to these web messages, been built up, and the people passing out pens and passing out the, the bulletins. It's been amazing that almost anywhere you go in Kingman anymore, you can find these pens and people in businesses and stuff that are, that are out there. You know, and, the, and people love these pens, and they've got the web address on it. Sharon passes out the old bulletins, and, they, and, I, and I'm very sure that Sharon is a responsibility for, the, for some of these countries hearing, you know, tapping into us because she gives out the bulletins to everybody that comes into her shop. And many of these people are foreign, foreigners who are now, they'll now have our website to listen to. We don't know all of what's going on, but you know, we're ministering to people. We don't know what's going on when, they're here, when they hear these messages. There could be pastors out there listening to the messages, using it to help build their church. It could be some of these places overseas where they're hearing it and maybe even using it to help teach their people. We don't know what's going on and how this is being used. God does. And when we get to heaven, there will be rewards because of our faithfulness in just doing this. And we want to be able to look at this. How is everything going to be used? Verse 4 says, in his hand are the deep places of the earth and the strength of the hills is also his. God holds, is big enough to hold this whole world. Now you think about that. It says, in his hand are the deep places and the hills are his. Now, this does not mean, and, and I, I've told you guys, there was this pastor one time that preached this whole message on how big God was because he took how big the world was and how it fit in God's hand and, 
you know, and the measure of God. You know, he took some of these verses that talked about, you know, how God holds the measure and holds the universe. And he picked up this great big sermon. He did a whole sermon on how big God was. The only problem is God is bigger than anything we can imagine. So we, this isn't saying somehow that God is limited in size. It's just saying everything about God he holds. He holds this whole world. He holds all the height of the hills. The sea is his, and he made it. His hands formed the dry land. Every bit of this world is his. And one thing about, one thing about this is when the Jews spoke about the sea, they were usually speaking about trials and tribulations. The Jews did not like the sea. Because all they really had was the Lake of Galilee and the, and the Dead Sea. They did, not, they did not appreciate the sea. They saw the sea as a very troubling place. And every time they tried to go out to sea, they would end up usually sinking and, and losing their ships. So the, the Israelites were never a seafaring people. So when they talk about the sea, they're usually talking about trials and tribulations. And so it says, the trials and tribulations are yours, God. The land's yours. Everything is yours. This is just a reminder. Everything is God's. And this is very important for us to understand and remember always. God is not poor. Matter of fact, if, if for any reason he was poor, he'd just create more, more wealth anyway. So it's not a big deal to him. And I love it. There's an old story when Dallas Seminary was first starting all these great leaders, and if you read their names, you know, today, they're all the books that we read. They were gathered together. The, the seminary was about to close. They had creditors, creditors at their doorstep wanting money. And they were praying, and, God, and they were saying, God, you know, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. Do you think maybe you could sell some of the cattle and, and, and give us the money? And they got a knock on the door, and the secretary says, there's a man out here who insists on seeing it. They go, no, we're praying. We've got we've to get this answer to prayer. And they pray, and she goes, no, no, he insists on seeing you. And he walks in, and he goes, you know, I'm so-and-so. I, I, I own this great big ranch, and I just got done selling a bunch of cattle, and I want to give the money to the, get the, money to the, to, to the, to the seminary. But this is the way God can work. You know, when we are in need, God is more than able to provide. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and by the way, he owns the hills also and all the silver and the gold and the gems and whatever that are in the hills. <laughs> he, he, is not, he is not limited. When we, when we have true needs, he can, he can meet those needs. And it is amazing to read the biographies and the stories of different churches, how God has met needs, how he's provided for the visions that, the, that he's given to people, how he's provided co Bible colleges for schools that for churches to, to start training pa up pastors. And they needed buildings for their students and everything. And all of a sudden, somebody would just give them a building. You know, God does this kind of stuff all the time. And when he provides, you, we take it. We say, God, how are we going to use this? And you, how are you going to provide for it? And he will. But God owns everything. There's not a shortage in this. And when we're ready to walk by faith, he's ready to give what we need. Verse 6 says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. To bow down. This first word for worship literally means to bow down to the earth. And it was used in Isaiah 51 when the enemies made them bow down and walked across their backs. This is how that he's talking about, that you expose everything to God because God wants that kind of worship. In, in the Orient, they, especially in Japan, they still bow to, to one another. And the depth of your bow shows how important the person is to, to you. Sometimes it's just kind of a nod of the head. You know, that's, and you're saying, well, we're, we're equals, or I'm, I'm superior to you, and I'm not enough. I'm not. Sometimes you see them going to somebody who's really important, and they do a 90-degree bow. You know, I'm, go I'm going to bow because you are. And when you think about this, the bowing really exposes the most vulnerable part of your body, your head, your back. It is a way to say, I trust, number one, I trust you. 
and you have the right to do what you want. And this is what this verse is bringing out. When God wants us to bow, he wants us to bow very deep and say, God, I'm exposing everything I am to you. Handshakes be, were, were started for just that type of reason. I'm bringing you my sword hand and it's empty and you're extending your sword hand that's empty so that we can trust one another. Okay. It doesn't mean anything anymore. Not, not what it started out as. Not what it started out as. And he's saying, let us worship. And then he says, and let us bow down or kneel to our knees on this one. And let us kneel to the Lord our maker. And that is to bow down with kneeling and blessing. This is, well, we look at this in English and it all sounds like kind of the same words. But in Hebrew, they're three separate words. Bow very deeply, kneel, and to kneel and bless. And this is what God, the writer saying, how much are we worshiping God? I think sometimes about this. What does it mean to worship God? And it really means to humble ourselves before God, to, to come before him with joy and singing. That just as we started out, the loud cry and victory shout of the war cry. He's wanting us to come to him and say, you're special. And how often do we come together and we try to be very sedate and, and solemn and, you know, and not smile? Have you ever been in a church where nobody smiles? I've been in a, I've been in a couple of there's nobody smiles in the church. You know, uh, and you look around and you're going, what kind of God are you worshiping? Who is this God that you know? Yeah, and I'm talking about Christian churches. I've been in Christian churches where it almost looked like if they smiled, they might break their faces <laughs> and, and somehow make God mad at them. And then you heard the singing. You know, it sounded like they were doing death dirges, <laughs> you know, funeral dirges. And it's, you know, let's get excited, people. We worship a living God who wants to bless you. And we get this from David, you know, make a loud noise, you know, shout and it's get exciting. You know, it's very sad that people will get more excited at a, at a ball game or a concert than they will before the God of the universe. And this is sad. And we've talked about this, how I used to live near, in Baltimore, we lived near two stadiums. On Saturday, it was a college stadium and in, and in and Sundays, it was the, the pro stadium. And you heard shouting all days for hours on Saturday and hours on Sunday because people were that excited. And we lived miles away from the stadiums. And I'm thinking, wow, we live closer to churches and I never hear any singing from these churches. No excitement from any of these churches. Now, granted, there weren't, there weren't 30,000 people gathered at the church, but, but you get the picture on this. The average church cannot be heard outside their walls when they worship God even with windows opened. Verse 7, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hands. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. He is our God. I love the way he put that. He is our God. He is not a God that is above us, that just says, well, I don't want to have anything to do with you. He's not out there just saying, you know, well, if you try hard enough, I might decide to make you, make you my servants. But he says he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. I, wanted, I just got, this struck me today, and I wanted to do some research on sheep. So I went on, and I didn't go to religious sites. I went on sites about sheep. Well, actually, sheep are very smart, but you, you can't train them from what they said. Let me tell you a few things about sheep that I learned. Sheep, as you already know, they love to flock together. A sheep loves to be with, they say, five or more other sheep. You cannot have a sheep, because I always thought I might like to raise a sheep and then butcher it up, but they say you cannot have a sheep by itself. If it's by itself, it will it will bleat all the time and will not eat. It will not do well because they are very social animals and they flock together. We as Christians are supposed to flock together. We're supposed to meet together. We're supposed to keep together. And what's more important, we should want to. 
I, I meet so many people to go, well, I guess I'll go to church, or I don't think I need to go to church, then you're not really a sheep. Because the sheep should want to come together with God's people and be with God's people. Part of what they flock together for is protection because sheep do not have claws. They do not have teeth. Unless it's a ram, it does not have horns. Okay. Now they say that rams are very dangerous and don't turn your back on the rams, but God calls us sheep, not rams. Sheep will follow the leader. Okay. And it doesn't matter. No one sheep is a leader. If one sheep decides to move... The whole flock will follow that sheep no matter where they go. If they go into a ditch or wherever, they will follow the sheep that moves. <laughs> Unfortunately, we as Christians tend to do the same thing often. Instead of necessarily just following the leader that God has put over us and the shepherd, oftentimes we will go off on our own way and many people often will follow us into whatever it is that we do. Sheep need to be allowed to see other sheep where they get very emotional. And that's part of what I talked about, this flocking. And I told you, I had a friend who had sheep, and they had this little tiny hill in, his, in, their, in their field. And one time, uh, one of his lambs got on being the other side of the hill and couldn't see the other sheep. And just bleated, and, and we were trying to have a prayer time. And he goes, just a moment, i got to go help my sheep. And he just led the sheep around to the other sheep, and, and it was all happy at that point. It was lost. It, could, it, it was only three feet away from anybody, but it couldn't see the other sheep. This happens to us as Christians oftentimes. You know, we get off on our own, and we start panicking because Satan wants to isolate us. Sheep are a very docile animal, all right? They're not aggressive. It says that they welcome a shepherd. When they get to know their shepherd, they welcome their shepherd. Not as much in the U.S. And other, as in other places, but in the Middle East, the, the shepherd literally, when Jesus says, my sheep know my voice, they know the voice of their shepherd. When they get to know their shepherd, they will follow that shepherd anyway because they trust him. We as sheep need to develop that ear for the voice of our, our shepherd and follow him no matter where he leads us, because he's going to lead us correctly. It says that they are very smart, but they will not learn tricks. You can't train them. They're not going to roll over. They're not going to play dead. They're, they're not going to shake hands with you. They go, they're very smart. They know their, they know their, their shepherd's voice. They, they learn survival things, but they do not just play games. This is something that's interesting. It goes, they like routine. Sheep do not like to have their routine changed. If, you, if you're going to feed them at the same time, they want to be fed at that time. If you don't feed them at the right time, they... But most of us are like that, aren't we? It goes... This is interesting, and I thought this was very interesting. Sheep move better on flatland or uphill. God deals with us in flat places and with trials and tribulations that teach us by moving uphill. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Sheep learn, walk and travel better on the flat or up. It has to do, going downhill definitely has to do with their vision. Lambs see very clearly to the sides. Their, hand, their, their eyes are somewhat off center. They see very clearly on the sides. They are totally blind behind them. And they get startled easy at anything that comes behind them and they have bad vision forward over their nose. So they're very easily startled. We're just like the sheep. We don't like to go down into the blindness. We like to go up. We don't usually like to go up, but it's better. We move better up than, or flat. So just like sheep, we, we, we need to be traveling with this idea of moving up toward God, but also through the trials. God's purpose of his trials is to help us learn. It says that they have no depth perception. Sheep have no depth perception. How many times do we in the spiritual world have no depth perception? We go with what we see. We don't see the dimensions that God sees, and, and he's got a long-term plan for us, and all we see is this immediate 
God, I'm hurting, I don't like this, and God's saying, I've got, a, I've got a great plan for you. Just trust me as you go forward into this plan. So when he's saying that we're sheep, it's kind of interesting. Sheep depend on their sight. As poor as it is, they depend on their sight. And we are to walk by faith, not by sight, and yet we tend to depend on sight. We don't like the idea of having to depend on God and his faith. They have great hearing and are easily startled. How easily startled are we when things seem to go wrong? It, I love this one. A healthy sheep eats a lot. But I was thinking, it's pretty easy sometimes to look at Christians and see who are healthy. How many of them? The Christians who come to church frequently to be fed by the, by the teacher, who, in, who are reading their Bible, who come around and say, this is what God showed me in the Bible. It shows that they are healthy. And then you see people who are very unhealthy sheep, if they're even sheep, <laughs> hardly ever come to church, hardly ever read their Bible, never talk about God because they don't have anything to talk about because they're unhealthy. And the last thing I was on, a healthy sheep is active and playful. God really wants his, us as Christians to be serving him and be motivated to serve him. And the more I studied about this, I, I'm sure if I dug deeper into sheep, it would probably be even more, more responsive. But I, got, I was just thinking about this. Everything that's about a sheep is what God is desiring in us. He wants us to be healthy in, in eating spiritual food. He wants us listening to his, to his view, uh, to his voice. He wants us to be with each other growing. He wants us to flock together and want to flock together. And it was just one of those things as I was reading about sheep and going, how interesting it is that God calls us sheep? And it's not just negative that, you know, the sheep are dumb. And sheep are pretty, they're very smart, but they end up doing a lot of dumb things because of what they do. Because they follow, they, yeah. would, they would literally follow some, another sheep into a, into a ditch or anything because one did it. It's got, we're, we're just followers. <laughs> when God calls us sheep, it's not all negative because there's a lot of good attributes for sheep, you know, being, being the ones who will stay together, flock together, come, to, come together, because this is where our strength and our protection is, even as a church. When we come together and are taught, we come together and edify one another, we come together and love one another, we are protecting ourselves spiritually from the enemy because we're depending upon one another. And so when God says that we're sheep, he's, it's not all just the dumb things that people talk about. And sheep do a lot of dumb things. They're not, David in Psalm 23 said that he leads us beside still water. And I've been told that, that if a sheep is drinking water and a leaf floats by, they will end up toppling over because their sight picks up the leaf and they will just lean right over and fall over. Sheep end up doing things, but it is because of their poor eyesight. They have good, good sight in one sense, but it's poor because it, it is they can't focus straight ahead. They, only, they, they have a more peripheral vision than they do anything else. And they don't see forward and they don't see back at all. One verse out of there, but I just figured, you know, I started looking up about sheep and I thought it would be an interesting thing just to show how when God calls us sheep, it's not all bad. And a lot of times we think of the, the negatives, the dumb sheep stuff, but it is a very po it is almost a positive thing when God calls us sheep in one sense. Well, they're not the smartest. Most people would like to be called a dog or something because dogs are pretty smart and friendly and, you know, and, and can be trained to do things. Uh, verse 8, well, let's start the last part of verse 9. Today, if you will hear my voice, God says, today, if you will hear my voice, harden not your heart as a as in the provocation and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. This is going all the way back to the Exodus. Because if you hear my verse, voice, do not harden your heart. Do not make it stiff. Do not, do not ignore God's words. How many times do we get in trouble when we ignore God's words? words but it says harden not your heart as in the day of provocation and as near as we know this this is talking about primarily Meribah 
And if you remember Meribah, that is when they had crossed the Red Sea, God had destroyed the Egyptians, they had gone a day or two out in the wilderness and they started complaining that they were thirsty. And not only did they just complain they were thirsty, but their complaint was, Moses, you, God sent us out here because there weren't enough graves in the, Egypt, so he brought us out here to kill us. That was God's, that this, is, this is the day that they're talking about when they say the day of provocation, because that was the very first time God says, well, maybe I will kill, you know, telling Moses, maybe I will kill them. You know, they, want to, they want to die, I'll kill them. And so, and Moses was told that several times. And so, and then the day of temptation was the 40 years of wandering when they disobeyed God when it was time to go into the promised land. They're tempted. You know, it's time to go in, guys. It's time to conquer this country. No, God, we're not going to go in there. There's giants in there. We look like grasshoppers. We can't, we can't take them. And, God, and I love, I've always loved Caleb and, and Joshua's answer. You know, our God is able. You know, you know he, he took the Egyptians and killed them. He took, you know, he's protected us in, the wild, you know, in, in this year in the wilderness. Why would you not think he can't kill, give us this land and the other ten said, nope, we can't do it. You know, we are grasshoppers. They'll just step on us. We'll be, we'll be gone. And God put them in the wilderness for 40 years. And it says that your fathers tempted me. They assayed him. They, were, you know, they wanted to see if he was true. And you know, this has got to be the craziest thing. The God of the universe, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and you're going to test him and see if he's telling you the truth. He is truth. He is righteousness. He is life. And they tested him. The problem is we do the same thing frequently where we just don't want to believe God's direction. We just don't want to believe that God has our thing. And it says you proved me, examined me, and then it says you saw my works. God wasn't so angry at them for even testing him and trying him, but they saw his works works and still rejected him it is so hard for me to understand their attitude god gives 10 plagues totally destroying egypt he kills the entire egyptian army in the red sea and all they do is complain that god doesn't love them god's out here trying you know, brought us out here to kill us the sad thing is oftentimes we do the same thing in our life God has blessed us, God has blessed us, God has given us rewards, he has given us promises. And then when the first trial comes, we go, God, why are you letting this happen to me? God, you just don't love me. Why would, why would you allow this to happen in my life? Sometimes we deserve it, but still, you know, we blame God. And we gripe and complain that he is allowing bad things into our life and that somehow he doesn't love us and that he's not kind and he's not faithful and he's not loving. And God says, I love you so much. I want, to just, I want you to grow. I want to, I want to get you ready for what's coming. God was very faithful to the, to the Jews. He trained them to get ready for battle. Not that they wanted to fight, but he, he trained them and got them ready. He trained them on how to trust him and yet, every time it came around, they wouldn't trust him. God does the same thing to us. He puts us into trials and temptations and tests to prepare us, to show us that he, basically to show us that he loves us and that he'll care for us. And oftentimes we do the same thing. We get into that big, the next bigger trial, and it's like, God, I just don't know what you're doing. I, you know, you put me here to hurt me. And God's saying, no, I'm here training you. I love you. Grow. Grow. Think about this. As we grow as, as humans, we start doing bigger and bigger things. We start out as a baby, and the first thing, you know, we, we get excited when our baby turns over, flops from their belly to their back, or from their back to their belly, and we get all excited. Now, if the, if the child was six years old, just flopping on their belly to their back, we sure wouldn't be excited, would we? You know, we'd be very worried about that child. The next thing we do, we see the child getting up on their hands and knees and, and crawling. Well, first they start rocking, and then they crawl. All right, then we, then we start helping them stand. Why do we waste our time helping them stand? Crawling is a very effective way to get around. You know, but we want them to grow. 
take the next step. It takes work of those muscles. Are we happy when they just learn to walk? When they first learn to walk? Yes. But if, again, if we have somebody that's six or seven years old and all they can do is barely walk and they can't run, they can't ju jump, they can't skip, they, they can't play sports, whatever it is, do you, do you see what I'm saying? God is going to develop us into higher and higher standards and it's part of our spiritual life and, and walk. That he's going to teach us. He's not going to be happy just that we're rolling around on the floor. He wants to see us walk. He wants to see us run. He wants to see us learn the skills to play sports. All of these things take time and effort to learn. And to get us there, he puts us in situations that make us learn. And it's not pleasant when we're learning. You know, there, there can be some pleasantness. When you're learning to play a sport, you, you kind of are excited about learning how to play the sport. But when you're learning to catch grounders and you spend hours learning how to catch the ground, you know, stop the ground ball and, and, or catch the football or spike the volleyball, whatever the sport is, it takes practice to be able to learn those moves. God is teaching us to do greater and greater things in our spiritual walk. It is not comfortable. It is not fun sometimes. But he's teaching us to be able to step forward and do more for him. And then he says, your fathers tempted me and proved me for 40 years long. I was grieved with this generation. God put up with a generation for 40 years, but also he was killing them off over that 40 years. And he said, and the people, and he said, it is a people that do err in their hearts and they have not known my ways. If we get to the place where we are just not going to soften our heart toward God and learn his ways, ultimately he will just cast us aside and say, well, if you're going to be that hard-hearted, I'm going to put you aside, just as he did this generation. This generation had every opportunity to repent and wouldn't. They had rejected God, and God said, fine, I'm going to let you all die. Sometimes God will trim our lives. He'll cut, the, he'll cut the dead branches, and if we still don't respond, we may shorten our life and make it very short. And God says, fine, I'm not going to let you ruin your, your testimony or my testimony. I'm going to take you home. And, but he'll do everything he can first. He'll do all the trimming of our life and, and putting us into very hard situations. And we can be very stubborn with God at times. I know I've been stubborn with God on several occasions in my lifetime, and it's taken him a long time to get my attention. I, I can be very stubborn. It took him a two-by-two two over the head for quite a few years, and then he went to a four-by-four four for, for the last couple years. <laughs> but we go through this, and, and God is very patient with us, but there is that point where he says, I am done. The children of Israel rejected going to the promised land, and he said, I am done with this generation. I'm going to take your children that you said were going to be the ones that would be killed. He, in the days of Noah, he was so angry with the people that he said, fine, I'm going to destroy the entire world, and Noah and his family are the only one that's going to live. We're coming to the time when the church will be raptured and the tribulation will start, where God says, I am fed up with this world and their disobedience. I'm going to take my people out and bring judgment. God eventually has a limit to what he will allow. And here he's saying that very thing. Their hearts are far from me. And then he said in verse 11, Unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not e enter into my rest. The rest, the promised land. God has a rest for us. The book of Hebrews is all about our faith rest. We become Christians and we are to, we are to come to a faith rest where we just rest in him no matter what happens. Doesn't mean we don't do anything. When the children of Israel entered into the promised land, that was they're entering into their rest, they first had to conquer the land. And God says, it's your rest. It is your gift. But I'm, I'm going to drive them out. I'm going to move them out. I've always loved Caleb, but he's 80 years, he's 80 years old plus. And when he talks to jo Joseph, uh, Joshua, he goes, I want that hill over there. It's got the toughest people. <laughs> You know, it's got the toughest. I want to see God do miracles and kick them out of their land. 
And all the rest of them are like, yeah, we don't even want to be here. We don't want to fight. And, and Caleb's going, you know, old man, give me that hill. <laughs> I want that hill for my possession because it's, it's got the tough people there. I want to see God do a miracle. How often do we avoid the tough things that will require God doing a miracle so that we can just kick back and say, well, you know, I'm going to do what I can. God is wanting to do the hard things. He wants to do the miraculous. He wants to be the one that says, this is me. I love it when I can look at something that has happened and going, God, I am so glad it was you because I couldn't have done it. This is not something that I could do. It is God. And I love seeing him do things like that, where he brings in blessings into us that are something we could not accomplish. And I love reading about this from the missionaries and all the stories that show that God size plans. We talked about Gideon, Gideon with his 300 men defeating 100 and over 100,000 men. And it was a God size victory. We have the story of Jerusalem being, being surrounded and they're praying to God. There's no way they can win the battle. They're, their city's completely surrounded and God in the night kills every member of the opposing army mm -hmm. in the middle of the night. These are God-sized miracles. Elijah praying for no rain and God for three and a half years puts no rain. Now, even in the desert, we don't go three and a half years with no rain. And he prayed that there would be no rain and there was no rain until he prayed for rain. And he started praying for rain and they got rain. These are the things that God does. And we look at this and we see miracles that God does in our, in our own life, in the church, in, our, in the activities. And God is saying, I am wanting to display my power. Are we willing to accept it? I get so tired when I hear people say that God doesn't do miracles anymore. He doesn't do the things he did in the Bible. Well, my God doesn't change. He still heals people. He still wants to deliver people. He still does miracles. And I'm glad that we've got a God that has not changed, that wants to be this way for us. And he wants to bless us. He wants to deliver us. And he wants to show his power. For those who want to say he's changed, they're going to have a weak God because he's not going to display his power to somebody who's not going to accept his power. But God can do things. He can heal people. He can change lives. And he will change lives because that's what he wants to do. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to have. We thank you that you are a great God that loves us with a great passion. We thank you for all of this. We thank you that you love us so much that you died for our sins and that we can be saved because of what you did. We thank you that you desire to grow us, that you desire to lift us up. And, and we just thank you for that great love. In your son's precious name, amen.